Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Loves, and kicking things off for us tonight, local artist Chuck Copenhagen with Creator. It's the first single from Oshki Manitou, which is out later this year. Copenhagen playing tomorrow at The Leaf for Canada Day. Uh, check out bandsintown.com, that's where I saw the information about it. Uh, but man, lots of great stuff happening. Folkfest just around the corner, if you've been tuning into Festival Express daily here on UMFM. Uh, you'll hear a bunch of interviews with great artists coming to town. I've got a couple interviews with artists who aren't coming to town, but who have some new records out that I strongly encourage you to listen to. Uh, coming up shortly, my interview with Joel Goodman, whose album An Exquisite Moment is a fantastic jazz record that features the likes of Donnie McCaslin and Brandy Younger, no strangers to audiences on this show. And then uh, a little later, Britton Ashford uh, will talk about her album Trotter, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a few minutes. But uh, first, got uh, Odario, former Winnipegger, who uh, now calls Toronto his home. Uh, this is a collaboration with good information called Do Nada. Maybe if you have no plans this weekend, you'll do nada. And then uh, some new astral jazz to kind of get us in the mood for Joel Goodman. Carlos Nino and friends have a new record coming out on International Anthem called I'm Just Chillin' on Fire. Uh, the newest single features Dean Tony Parks and Nate Mercero. It's called Flute Stargate. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM. Captivity of time. Captivity of time. We see things differently in time. Whatever the cost, whatever the loss, proceed with caution. This boy is exhausted. Accosted by time. Was once exhilarated until it cost me. I've got that love myself thirst that saved myself first. A steep incline, you don't have the inkling of the confines. The delusion is proven. Massage my temples, work behind the scenes like B-roll and find some kind of control. I've been busy. It's dizzying like Gillespie. Time is precious and elegant Fitzgerald. A domestic silence. I want nothing to do, I wanna wheel it back, wanna, wanna chill, reflect, press rewind, I wanna stop going fast, disappear and I mean it too, lost time that I can't recoup, these days I want nothing to do, dude, I want nothing to do. To embark on a lower level When I hum, when I walk Slow pace and recap the stars We can situate where the wild things are Hot vampire, hot like campfire Soaked in sound bath, ASMR Face to face, my thoughts and feelings Crates all night, run track, stars yielding Singing ooh with a feeling Tapped out, still learning how to breathe in my house Remember how to breathe, now calm down You can holler if you need me Back tools, romantic fool, botanicals Like an anesthesia House of blues, attitude, I'm on my stay at home, I'm on my ballot booster Take the loop up, time to loose up, reduce new things I used to Solid like an institution, pass the potion, dude I got nothing to prove Out of here in the clear bamboos, in the air disappeared like poof Slept it, like narcoleptic, do not another, got my life on snooze I want nothing to do, I wanna wheel it back, wanna, wanna chill with Rewind, I wanna stop going fast Disappear and I mean it too Lost time that I can't recoup
All right. Well, his album, An Exquisite Moment, is actually filled with several exquisite moments. It came out last week, and Joel Goodman joins me on the show. Welcome, Joel. Thank you. Thank you uh, for having me here, Michael. My pleasure. So uh, as I understand it, the, the, the genesis of this record, you weren't necessarily like looking to make a record. You started kind of like playing some stuff in your, in your own place in Topanga, like just to kind of get some stuff out. I mean, your primary role, I guess, is as a composer for, for film and TV. And, and this was maybe not an exercise, but at least just kind of an outlet. A- at what point does it switch from outlet to like pursuit or, or you know, project? I love this question um, because it really does speak to the genesis of this particular album. About six years ago or so, I started writing music aside from my usual work as a film and TV composer, just as a process of discovery. I wanted to find different voices within me that hadn't had the opportunity to come out yet. So I was writing music with no purpose, essentially, which sounds funny, but I was not writing it for a commission, for a score, or to be performed live for record. There was no reason really to do this other than just for myself. And a lot of that music was uh, chamber music, orchestral music, solo piano stuff. And then one day I'm sitting there in my studio and I started playing bass. Uh, and I, I, I think literally, this might sound funny, but I think within two or three hours, I had written a bunch of the bass lines and most of the melodies that are on the album. Mm. It just kind of all came at once. Uh, and then the next day, as I typically will work on something and then put it away and come back to it at a later time, came back the next day and listened to it and felt like, oh, there's, there's something here. And then the concept just came all at once. The idea of going into, this is a record. Let's go into the studio with a band. I don't want to have to tell everybody what to play which is typically what happens in the film scoring world. You have to write out everybody's exact part because everything is time to picture. No, let's have uh, whoever at the point I wasn't thinking about players, but whoever was going to play guitar, let's have them play, figure out their part, the drums, et cetera. And that was really the genesis of the project. And it all just came together like that. It, the music kind of told me what it should be, in other words. And and I felt like okay, yeah, this is a record. So those first few hours, those those bass parts and the and the melodies, did they come from like like had you been listening to certain things at that time that you feel kind of flowed through you, or or was it you know a chance to just kind of like unwind after you know doing something that a, a director or you know a music supervisor told you to do for a for a film or a television score? Right, probably the former. I'm a bass player. That's my most proficient instrument I, I play piano and a bunch of other things too but bass is where i feel most at home and most competent uh and i've always loved music that kind of started with the bass line so to speak and a lot of this music really does start with it you know even the first track on the album the first thing you hear is is one of those bass lines you know immediately so it kind of came to me in the sense of like this this is my roots this is where i come from this is where i started playing music seriously as a teenager i would say you know influence wise some of that music influenced me you know some of the herbie hancock music from the 70s which i was listening to at the time uh when i was a teenager definitely uh influenced me 
There is a not as well-known band out of the UK called Ill Considered. They they definitely influenced me. Uh, I walked into a record shop in London, and as I walked in, I heard that music. They were playing it on vinyl there, and I was like, "Who is that?" You know, and, and since you know, listened to all of their music. They're fantastic. And the thing I loved about what they did also is it's all live. It's all improvisation based, very loosely structured also. And, and that started to really appeal to me. And I realized, ah, so as I started to listen to more of this, oh, there's, there's, there's an audience out there for this. You know, people are into this now. And that's kind of cool. So I started listening to, you know, all sorts of things. You know, Brandy, as I mentioned before, you know, was one of those people. Certainly Donnie's music as, as well. Yeah, Donnie McCaslin. Uh, Donnie and I, yeah, yeah. Donnie and I know each other from Berkeley. Um, haven't seen each other in a very long time, decades, but have kind of been following each other's careers. And I listened to what he was doing, and I was like, "Wow, you know, that's that's great too." So I can't say it was you know one influence per se, but I can say that it had nothing to do with film scoring. If it's it, it runs quite in the other direction from that. Well, like you said, not having to chart everything, like to to write the score out and and time things so that it syncs up with you know a scene in a in a show or something. There's a much like more loose kind of creative sense to it, but also like a looseness in terms of like the interplay between the the players and the instruments on this record. I think absolutely, and collaboration is key. The first call I made after I. That week, the call that I made after I realized that this was a record was to one of my dear friends, uh, Joe Martin, who's a great record producer, composer himself, an orchestrator, and um, told him my whole story about what I envisioned for this. And then I asked him to produce it with me. And thankfully, he said yes. And, you know, so right away there, it's a collaboration. You know, the sharing of ideas. And it was... The entire project has been set up for for that specifically. Producer can mean a lot of different things depending on kind of the the situation. What was what did you pitch to Joe, and like what what did you see his role as in as producer? What I pitched to Joe would be, from most people's perspective, very minimal. Most people would say, "Yeah, that's not enough of a pitch." But Joe and I have been friends for decades. We know each other's work. We've worked together before as well, and uh, there's a lot of trust between us. And in this case, from the producing standpoint, it wasn't so much the music itself, because I think the music was there. It was more about let's pick out, let's pick the right players for this for this gig. You know, that's that's what's going to make this. If you were making a film, it'd be you know how are we going to cast this? And it's an ensemble cast. So it's all about how everybody interacts with everybody else. I heard, I've been listening to Donnie, as I mentioned, and in a lot of ways, it was his sound that I heard in the lead. Kind of ironic in the sense that I don't use saxophone much in my scoring work, but I, I, I mentioned this in, in the EPK video. It's much more about the person than it is about the instrument. And when Donnie solos, there's something that's incredibly thematic in the way he builds a solo, which really speaks to me. And he ties that in to the song itself. So it's not like, you know, you're going to play the tune and then I'm going to go off and just do my solo, my, my own thing. No, he's, it's integrated. 
and he listens. You can hear that he listens to everybody else as he's playing, and everybody else is listening to him. So that became a big part of, of, of the concept. So after I spoke to Donnie, I think I spoke to Scott next, Scott Culley, then Eric Harland, who just, you know, just an amazing musician. Mino Sinelu, who I've been listening to since I was a teenager as well. And then Adam Rogers. And Adam's kind of an interesting thing. I remember in our first conversation, we had talked about how we had never worked together before, but all of our friends have worked, all of my friends have worked with him and all of his friends have worked with me. It was something like that, that we, we knew each other from like way back, but we would never really get together. And the nice thing is that all of these people have worked together before, but not in this combination. I had a good sense of what it was going to sound like. The decision to have Scott play bass, because like you said, you wrote these on the bass. And then, yeah. you know, you then turned to the keys. Did you want to keep the bass to yourself? Or or is it like, what was the decision making in that, right? Because like if if, if, this, if the bass is your, your most proficient instrument, it's the one that you started with, why not mm-hmm. you on the bass? Why do you give that to someone else and then, you know, take the keys for yourself? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, Scott's an acoustic bass player. I'm an electric bass player, and I really wanted that sound on mm. it. As a, as a composer, over the years, I've worked with some incredible bass players. I've also played bass on a lot of my, my scores and TV shows that I've done. But there are times when you want to call somebody else. It doesn't matter if, if that's your instrument. That's how I feel about it. So, yeah, I would say that that's my take on it. And I love Scott's playing. He's, he has a feel that's... You know, it it just lays in there so well, and he's so solid. Um, I knew he was going to be the right thing, you know, for it. That said, I did play bass on three of the tracks. After we had recorded those sessions, I felt that electric bass was needed on on some of these tunes. And in some cases, it's just me. Uh, on Rumi, for instance, actually, it's me and Scott is electric bass first, then we're playing together at the same time, and then it's just him, and then it comes back to me. So we kind of hand it off um, on astral projection. I'm playing some electric bass along with Scott, but then exquisite moment ends up, it's just me playing fretless bass, and um, and then John Patitucci plays bass. There's actually three bass players on the album. So uh, John plays on an exquisite moment. He's doing all the ad-libs and, and the solo parts. And again, it was the idea of having acoustic bass and John is just such a, a fine player, and he plays such a lyrical solo. It, it, it's it's great. The um, decision to name the album after the track "An Exquisite Moment" was that there from the start, or did you decide at some point this is this is the title for the whole project? Because I mean, I've played Astral Projection on the show, and I feel like like because it, it's a, it's like a suite, right? Like there's what four exactly. parts. It's kind of the the biggest part of it, and yet it's not the the like titular thing how did you land on an exquisite moment as kind of the the name of the project and not just the name of one song the music for the album was created with no direction per se it wasn't like i'm going to sit down i'm going to write something about trees and it's going to be mysterious that was that was not that never came into the thought process as i went but through life, through whatever else I do in life, I have a lot of other experiences via music, books I read, art that I see, travel, all these other things. And I believe that those things come out in what you write. And then you can 
think, oh, I think I know where this comes from. You know, in the case of the mystery of trees, I was actually in, in tandem with doing the album. I was scoring a film about trees. It's a film for HBO called Entangled. And I was really deep into it. I was really into this because I'm also a big nature lover. I'm hiking all the time and I'm out as, as often as I can be. And I felt like, yeah, this song comes from that experience. And that's what's happening with me at that time. So to go back to your question, an exquisite moment, to me, there's a saying called, there are no ordinary moments, which is to say that every moment is special and unique and worth keeping in mind that really, you know, we're lucky to have all of the moments that we have. And if we really pay attention to what's happening in this moment, there is something extraordinary about it and exquisite, let's say. So for me, the recording sessions and the creation of the album was itself an exquisite moment. Yet I also believe that what we've produced within each song, there are multiple exquisite moments. There are times when, for me, it elevates. Something is happening that takes me somewhere else. For me, that's true throughout the album. The album itself is very much an album. It is not just a collection of songs. It starts in a specific place, and hopefully, people hear this also, it takes you on a journey, and it builds. And there are times, you know, anything that builds is not just a clear line up, right? It kind of goes like this, but the trajectory is mostly up. And astral projection felt, you know, it's funny, because at first, before we recorded anything, I thought, oh, maybe this will be the first piece on the album. It wasn't until we finished, I think it wasn't until we finished mixing that I felt, no, this is how it should close. Because this is really where we're heading to. Astral projection in itself is a beginning that builds throughout. There's a lot of interesting things compositionally that happen in astral projection. While it's a piece in four movements, the first, I'll just mention very briefly what some of it is. The first movement is very simple. It's really just two chords going back and forth, just an A minor and an A major with, with different bass notes. So it changes the quality of those, of those chords. So it does sound like it's moving along a lot more than that, but it's rather simple and rather triadic in, in its approach. The second movement, Orbit, is based on fourths and starts to get more complex harmonically and much richer than what came before. And then the third section, Bliss, where uh, Scott's soloing is, you know, very rich harmony, much richer than, than what came before. So it's kind of building this richer harmonic language, you know, throughout as it goes. And then the idea always was to come back to the first movement and to reach this level of exaltation and to have it just blast off, essentially. It's the, like the final departure at the at the very end. Yeah. No, it, exactly. It, I mean, it does. It makes sense that it hangs at the end of this record rather than like you have that exaltation and then you move into like the other tracks on the record. Like, I think it it ends where it's supposed to end. Right. Glad you hear that. Thanks. Yeah. You mentioned Joe kind of being like almost like the casting director in terms of if this was like a comp to films. I know you've worked with a lot of different directors. Did you take anything lessons learned from them 
in applying this to this project because you were essentially like the director and you've got, you know, your cast and your script and. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll say one thing about that. When I'm speaking with a director, it's mostly a conversation about emotions. Um, my favorite question to ask directors is what do we want the audience to feel at this moment in the film or at that moment in the film? And I'm always, it, it kind of sets up uh, a response that would be, I want someone to feel happy. I want someone to feel sad. I want someone to feel the abandonment that this character feels. I want someone to feel the trepidation that this person feels. I did talk to everybody together as we recorded each tune and talked about what the emotional feeling was. I wasn't asking anybody to do that. I was telling them, this is, this is where it comes from. You will do what you do. There, there was a lot of trust in, in the recording. And, you know, I, I've been recording music for a very, very long time. And I'm thankfully very familiar with working with musicians in the studio, no matter what the situation is. And there are times, even when scoring, where you're going to have things that are improvised or parts that are made up. And you kind of find the language, you know, that works depending on who you're talking to. Most musicians will want to hear something a little more concrete, musically speaking, and that's how you'll get the results you want quicker. But play that a little softer, you know, go, go back to that higher range. You know, when you play that, those low parts, that was really nice. Could that be, you know, even more subtle than, than what you're doing? There's all sorts of things that, that you can talk about that way. But I think it's nice to give an emotional sense of where we're coming from. If you do that and then they hear it in the music, then your job is done. Then the performer knows, you know, where, where you're coming from and they will interpret it in their way which I think is, you know, ultimately what you want from a great performer. Absolutely. Before I let you go, Joel, I want to get you to pick a track off of the record that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking that song in particular or an anecdote about the creation of it or something, I'd love to hear that. Well, okay. Yeah, let's talk about Astral Projection. Why not? The first part of Astral Projection, the first movement, I wrote essentially just the, the ostinato and the chords probably three years ago maybe even a little more than that. That's been sitting around for a while. Everything else on the album was, was written here, but that's all I wrote three years ago. But then I had to flesh out that movement. It had no melody in it. It had no counter melodies. Um, it was really just the da, 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 da. The original uh, demo of it that I shared with Joe when we were talking about which tunes for the record, um had just that it's <laughs> just that and, and a left hand piano part so there was still a lot to write in that first movement then once i got that down i knew exactly what i wanted for the second and the third and the fourth movement so conceptually i knew exactly where i was going with it and i would sometimes write notes in longhand about it and i think it was about a week after i did that i woke up out of my sleep at like three in the morning and I had been hearing exactly what the second movement was going to be. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm going to have to get out of bed and write this down <laughs> at three in the morning. You know, I was like, ah, oh, okay. So I dragged myself out of bed. I went to the piano and I wrote down the entire second movement in like an hour. It, I knew exactly what it was going to be. 
I don't know. It was it was the strangest thing because I was either hearing it in my sleep and it woke me up, or I woke up and I heard it right away. So I I don't know, but that's how it happened. And as I described before, the idea of the third movement being even richer in um, in harmony uh, was always there, and that came also rather quickly. Um, there's a, an interesting anecdote to that movement as well. It's really a 16 measure phrase that gets modulated several times. I think it ultimately repeats four times, um, but it doesn't, it may not sound that way because it's in a different key every time that it happens. A little bit of a challenge for, for Scott, who is soloing on it. But I wanted this movement to always be really open without melody. It was always about the harmony. So I never wrote a melody for that movement. And in the recording session, it was just Adam playing the chord changes on the guitar, Mino and Eric playing along, and Scott soloing. That's all that was there. And I remember telling Scott, whatever he played, I was going to write some string parts around what he played. And I hadn't written any of the string parts. That was the other thing about the album, was record the whole album and then arrange the music later. So it's kind of done in a backwards process. So Scott played his solo, which, which was great. And I was able to write these string parts around what he played. And then ultimately felt that it would be nice to have some winds in there too. So we had four wind players in addition to the strings. And yeah, that's kind of my anecdotal tour through astral projection great well we'll give that one a listen again here on the show congratulations on the release of the record it's a fantastic one and uh folks can go check it out on Bandcamp. joel thanks very much and congratulations again it's been my pleasure this has been a lot of fun thank you michael
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. And uh, out today, Jess Ray, Jess Ray heir of Sweet Alibi, set to release her debut solo album this winter, uh, but uh, dropped a new single called Hearts on Loan. We're going to give that one a listen. And then uh, right after that, my interview with Britton Ashford. Uh, earlier this week, I got the chance to talk to her about her great new record, Trotter. We'll get into that in just a few moments. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM. some selections from Trotter before, but excited to have Britton Ashford on to talk about the record. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So as I read, you you posted on Twitter that, uh, you know, this this was in lieu of therapy. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I know that this, this album came about, you know, post kind of tumultuous time, uh, the passing of your father, and you'd been involved with a Broadway production that you ended up leaving. Was this, like, did you purposely start writing these songs to like process all of those things or did you find that that's what you were doing and then you're like oh maybe I have an album here yeah I think the latter you know I 
as a as a musician, as a singer songwriter, writing music has always been a way for me to explore how I'm feeling, what I'm feeling. And yeah, it it wasn't until you know a couple years after my dad had passed, I was like, oh yeah, there's a lot here. There's a lot I haven't processed, which of course was like tied to the to the Broadway production and uh, my departure there. You know, finally having that time to process and then all of a sudden it was like all of this all of this emoting all of these feelings all of these things that I sort of uh, channeled into music and then yeah there's that point I think uh, almost any musician goes oh there's an album here so did you at that point when that when that starts to crystallize like did you have all of the songs that are on Trotter or did you have some of them and think okay then I need to flesh this out and make this like a full piece I mean there were definitely a, a little bit of both if that makes sense like I would say going into the recording like the official recording process I think I had like 80 percent what are there 11 tracks on the album I think I had you know eight of them done like done and then I had one song that I uh could have done you better it was a song that uh you know, I was talking to my drummer. I was like, no, I think I think this is the drum part. You know, I think it's like this. And meanwhile, like the, the engineer is over sort of like turning some knobs on something else, listening back and like kind of like going through the drum part and he's hitting a pillow. And the engineer, you know, he takes off his headphones. He's like, what What are you doing? Like, no, that's that's the sound, actually. Yeah, we're just going to do that. You're not going to play drums on this. You're going to play a, a pillow. pillow. <laughs> so, like, you know, those magical, like, you know, sort of, I, I, I'm going to use air quotes, studio moments, mm -hmm. you know, because... We weren't in a studio, but we had all the gear there. It was it was pandemic, you know. Uh, but yeah, it definitely that certain magic of being open to be like going into it and being like, well, what what is it? What is next? Like what else what else belongs on this? And like sort of taking that moment and just doing it and what comes out and it and it worked. It belonged. <laughs> that openness to something like that happening like where you know an outside voice says no that's that's it maybe it's not what you were expecting or what you were planning but then being willing to kind of go there how how much is that like seeding control or like authorship and how much of that is like you know being a like a creative partner or someone who's like you know listening to other people as you make stuff uh, well, I absolutely want to give a shout out to Mark Robertson, who was the engineer on this and ultimately the producer. And I mean, I definitely consider him a collaborator, um, 100%, 100%. Like he is someone I, I've made music with before. Uh, I've played in his played in his band many, many years ago. It was called Harlow and the Great North Woods. And, you know, we did a little bit of touring. We were based out of Portland. And I love his sensibility so much. And it's not always this way. Like, I, I of course, I, I love collaboration. I think it's one of the most important parts of making music for me. Maybe not for everyone, but definitely for me. Mm. Because other people are always going to hear something that you don't. And if you're not willing to listen to that, you know, it's, it's a hard row. You know, like, um, you need to be open or at least for me, I need to be open. Some people are artistic geniuses and that's that and they're not going to take anyone else's advice. But for me, it's... And, and maybe I wasn't always that way. I remember uh, one of my friends who I also made music with and she's like, 
you know, you've used this turn of phrase in a song before. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway, you know. And then, of course, a couple of years later, I'm like, yeah, why didn't I just listen to it? I could have just changed it. It's not like it was an art. It wasn't an artistic choice. It was just how the song happened. But I could have written it to be something better. Thinking back on that, with that moment, with that, that bandmate, like, are you in a place now where, like, you would, you think you would adjust or accept that in a different way? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think, again, like, going back to, like, Mark, uh, you know, him being like, let's try this. You know, because sometimes I'd be like, here's the idea. And he'd be like, okay, we'll try it. But what about this? And me being like, yeah, let's try it. <laughs> what do we, what do you lose by trying something? Even if you think it's a bad idea. Again, there was a time in my life where I'd just be like, well, that's a bad idea. I don't want to do it. But now to be like, oh yeah, let's try it. I want to be wrong. Please, please make me wrong. I want your idea to be the better one. <laughs> is is this like that notion that the the mistakes we make are the ones that bring us to the place we're at? Like that trying something wrong might find a solution absolutely like absolutely 100 percent. how many i mean i can't tell you how many musical things i have done that initially were not what i intended and then ended up being better than what i had intended i know not everyone works like that i'm not someone who composes my music. I don't sit down with paper and pen or, you know, a, a computer to write out the parts. Uh, I sort of let them move through me. That sounds cheesy, but, you know, like, uh, as someone who is, I consider myself definitely like a songwriter. I like words. I like songs. And sometimes you, you don't know what you're going to say until it comes out of your mouth. And musically too, you know, you're like, oh, I, I, I threw a seventh chord in there. Why not? It, I didn't mean to, but it, it's it's correct. So the variation in terms of like the production on, on Trotter, because there's some like very spare songs and then there's some like fully kind of embellished and, and thick sounding songs, right? Kind of like, honestly, a couple tracks reminded me like Florence and the Machine in terms of just like kind of like this kind of grandiosity. And then it's like it pulls back to like just you at points. Was that like intentional or is that something that just kind of came out in the in that like each song was its own thing and you were kind of pursuing that song and then taken in their entirety, there's this like variation. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, everything was intentional and there's a moment, there's even a couple songs where there, we, we had drums on them and then we realized that they didn't need them, you know, that it was like too much. So each song, sort of the arrangement, what we ultimately ended up going with, we felt served the song best. Um, uh, like uh, Tea Leaves is this lovely, very acoustic, very open, um, sort of arpeggiated uh, acoustic guitar thing. And, you know, uh, my my friend Dan Hunt sort of uh, came over and, you know, we're all wearing masks. It's very, you know, again, this is this is probably 2021 at this point. And, you know, he starts playing this thing and it's like, it's really cool. And he's playing it to the track. But ultimately listening back, we're like, you know, it doesn't really, like, it's cool, but it doesn't need it. And I think also there's a, this kind of goes back to the, the point we were just talking about, like what, uh, that flexibility, you know, to like listen to something and go, actually, that's not, 
that's not what we need to do. You know, like that's not what the song needs. So being willing to hear something and go, yeah, that's fine. We recorded it. Yeah, we spent two hours doing it. Who cares? It's not the right thing. Right. The, appreciating that something works, but it's not what you want in that instance. Yeah, or it, that it just doesn't serve. It doesn't It doesn't make it better. I guess that's the thing, which I think is the thing I had to learn. And I think I I sort of take a step up with each project I do. Where I'm like, oh yeah, just because you recorded something or just because you really wanted a uh, violin on a particular track. And then, and there's two two factors. It's like, well, maybe the person didn't play the best part for it, but also it's like, well, maybe it just doesn't need it. I read an interview you did with the Brooklyn Rail and you talk about house concerts in particular during that interchange. And I'm curious about, you know, because that's a very oftentimes like a stripped down or a very spare performance right like just by limitations of being in someone's living room do you give thought to like how a song works at its like core when it's just you when you're writing songs or making an album in the thought that like eventually it may have to exist in a in a really like kind of isolated place i mean yes and no i mean fundamentally most of my songs start with the idea of what i Think it should sound like and then ultimately it's me and my piano or it's me and my guitar or uh n- knowing that fundamentally that's how i'm writing it i know that i can get back there even if in my brain i'm like all right and the drums come in here and like it'd be cool if we could have you know strings here but knowing that at it's as a to me the song like the fundamental the, the story i guess uh or whatever emotion it is that i'm trying to convey that sort of lies at the at the heart of it so it doesn't always work <laughs> actually we we played a house show last night uh it was really lovely and it was just me and my bassist and my guitarist and even that's like you know, more than just like me and an acoustic instrument. Like my guitarist had his electric guitar plugged in. And of course it it was electric bass, not upright bass. And, you know, there's a way, I think most songs, you you might have to change them a little bit. So now like uh, Saints of the Coast is a song on the album that we did last night that was actually hard to sort of like pull it back uh, because it has all this percussion on it that's very cool that in in my mind, I'm like, oh, that makes the song. That is the song. But like, it's not. At the end of the day, you go back to what is like the core of the song. And, and most people in that room don't know the song. They don't know it. So they're hearing it for the first time. And I think, uh, and it's something I talked about in the rail interview. It's like letting go of what you think something is supposed to be and just just doing it. And if somebody hears that version at a house show and they love it and they buy the record, or they go listen to it on a streaming platform, they'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm going to say most of the time, no one's going to be disappointed that like, you know, the, the shiny version is, is different. They're going to be like, oh, that's different. And maybe they like both or maybe, <laughs> maybe they're disappointed. I don't know. Well, I was thinking but, recently about the, like that difference is kind of crucial in terms of the the beauty of the live performance right like that i think of like some of my favorite live performances and things that can never be replicated right that it, it, like it was what happened in the moment and and that's what made it incredible yeah that's that's another thing i really i mean i also i love performing live i love it i love connecting with people 
And I do really love house concerts, even though it's like crazy to think you're like, all right, well, I'm playing for 40 people. I'd rather play for 40 people knowing that I can individually connect with like almost everyone in that room versus like, oh, I got to open for some big shot band in a giant place. I mean, I'd love to do that too, but you know, like it's, it's a very different experience. And I, I just love that connection and I, yeah. Right. And it might still be like 40 people out of like, say a thousand who really like pay attention during the opener, right? Like that, like it, you may still be connecting with kind of the same number, even though it seems like a larger body of people. Yeah. But the difference is those 40 people, I'm, you, you will connect with them, but you won't necessarily know it. You know, like they may not go up to you afterwards. They, they may not buy your record, you know, um, they might find you later, but in the moment you're just like, oh, I don't know, there's chatter and, you know, I, 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 I couldn't hear my whatever, you know, whatever, you know, like it's, Sometimes that is harder. And I it it doesn't mean that that is w without reward. It totally is. And it can be super amazing, you know. But uh, yeah, there is some, there's magic in the connecting with the people right in front of you. And there's that immediate feedback, right? Because yeah. there's like no barrier to like them talking to you after a house show, right? Like uh, I don't know. This is also, I don't know what this says about my personality. But, um, you know, some of the songs in this album are like deeply personal and like really they're even hard for me to play and there's but there's this tremendous reward as a performer when i'm playing the song that is hard to play that i realize that there's this like it's this visceral emotional reaction that's like it's right in front of you you can't ignore it so there's something there is something really rewarding about that um providing catharsis uh, <laughs> it's interesting you, you you talk about that because I was going to ask you, I've, I've talked to a few other artists who've written songs on the heels of, you know, a parent passing or someone, you know, in their life passing and then writing about them or, you know, through writing through their grief and then having to like tap back into that when you perform it and whether that's like triggering or like at a certain point, do you find like grace and like relief in kind of sharing those emotions? Oh, I think the hope is that you come to a place that there is uh, relief, that it's, again, that you can take your experience that is difficult and show someone else that, you know, that there's another side to it. You know, I'm sharing my grief so that you can process your own. And I admit there, there was a, a song I played last night that I've only played live a few times. And I went, the first time I played it live was also at a house show and I just could barely keep it together. There was, a, I mean, even like there was a rehearsal when we were rehearsing for our release show. I remember we were playing it and I just like in the middle of the song, I just started crying because I just like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep it together. And you know, it's a little different when you're performing live to be like, oh yeah, I have to keep it together. Mm. Um, which, you know, the, the 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 more I perform, I think the the more I perform any given song, the easier that is to do. It, it remains difficult, but it also like that channels itself. It's part of the it's part of the performance, and it's part of for me as an artist why I do what I do to be like here is like share share my share your grief with me. I will share mine, and you will share yours, and we're in this room together. And and that doesn't matter how big the concert is you can feel that in a you can feel that in a giant room you know if you're tapped into it you will find it mm -hmm. the album's named after your father 
was it was it always going to be named after your father or did that come about kind of once you started looking at the songs and realizing some of it was about your grief yeah i mean i i think when i decided when i decided that this was definitely what the album was that this is like sort of the the processing album uh yeah, it was a, a distinct choice. And part of that is that, you know, my my given name, my legal given name uh, is actually Ashford Trotter. It's a hyphenated, hyphenated name. name. And uh, as a kid, I always thought it was like kind of annoying. Uh, you know, like it's, it's a lot of name. Like you go to a, a, I don't know, you have an appointment and they're like, what's your last name? And you're like, Ashford Trotter. It's hyphenated. I got to a point where, like, when I was performing, I was just using Ashford. Uh, in part, like, it, it, sound, it sounds a little snappier. It's less to say. Uh, it wasn't anything personal ever, but, like, Britain Ashford sounded better than Britain Trotter. It sounded just, like, very... A lot of hard T's. A lot of T's. Yeah, a lot of T's. And, like, so... And, and also, as my mom said, she's like, well, you know we hyphenated your last name so that you would be at the start of the alphabet. <laughs> It's like, really? That was the reason? Okay. I think one of many, but I guess my dad felt as a trotter growing up, he's like, well, I was at the back of the alphabet. So, you know, Ashford Trotter gets you and gets you to the top. So this was a way of, of honoring him. He never said anything uh, disparaging about my stage name. I couldn't help but feel it. Like, I know he was very proud of me and the work that I did. But his mother, my grandmother, was always like, I can't believe you don't. I, what's wrong? What's wrong with Trotter? You know? <laughs> so this is my way of sort of honoring honoring that name for my family and, and putting it out there. And that felt important to me. And of course, you know, both my, my father and my grandmother uh, have, have passed. And yeah, it felt like a nice way to honor them. For sure. Before I let you go, Britton, I want to get you to pick a track off of Trotter that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking it or an anecdote about it, we'd love to hear that. Gosh, ooh, boy. Uh, you know, uh, for the sake of radio friendliness, I would say Hand Ringing in the Wings. And because it is a song, it does not reflect uh, the grief of my father, but the show that I was in, the Broadway show that I was in and my time with that. And yeah, it, it sort of even has a little uh, melodic reference to the show. And I just think it's a really big, beautiful, full song. So that was Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. Did you, because you're in that instance, you're performing someone else's work. Mm-hmm. Did you take any like lessons from doing someone else's work and apply them to your own music? Or is that like an entirely separate thing? I mean, I, I consider them pretty separate. I will say that when when Dave Malloy, the composer, asked me to do the workshop on that show, I was like, mm, it's not really my thing. I don't really understand it. And he's like, but I wrote this song for you. And it's actually it's it's based off of one of your songs. And I was like, mm, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. And then I, it wasn't until later when I put out my album uh, Drama Club, which is like covering musical theater songs through a David Lynch filter was sort of the joke I kept making. But um. I did, I did a, a retooled version of Sonia Lone, which was the song I sang in the show. And I was like, oh, oh, it, it is that song. <laughs> you know, like, uh, which I thought was really funny. But yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot about just performing the same thing 
uh, over and over again. It was such, I mean, it was a beautiful experience. It was a difficult experience. Uh, if there are things I would do differently, but I, yeah, what did I, I, I learned, I'm trying to think of like applying it to my own musical sensibilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still love the way I make music, which is I don't consider to be particularly theatrical. Uh, and doing a Broadway show, I think oftentimes people hear Broadway and they're like, not interested. You know, I don't want your jazz hands. I don't want your schmaltz, you know, like, you know, uh, it, it's too explanatory or whatever people's qualms with it too articulated you know uh so i don't really i don't uh keep that in my heart when i'm making my own music but uh a really valuable experience about uh how a big beautiful piece of art is made and i met a ton of amazing people and worked with a ton of amazing people i'm really grateful for that well we'll give your own art uh some broadcast here uh, at the end of this interview. Um, I, I mentioned your Twitter account. What's the best place for people to keep tabs on you? Uh, probably Instagram, Yeah. Uh, uh, which my, my handle is kitten donut. Sure, of I, course. It is. Well, I, please explain. I, God, you know, I picked the handle before I ever thought, well, well I just was like, someone's like, have you heard of Instagram? You know, uh, and so I just, I didn't think twice about it. I wasn't like, oh, this is a place where people are going to, find me and follow me. It's not going to become my primary source of communicating with my fans and my audience. I think at the time it was actually like my okay Cupid handle, mm. which so uh, just translated over. You're like, so I, I don't, don't have know. to I remember don't... it on two different platforms. No, I was like, well, I was like, all right, well, I'm done with that, but I still think it's funny. I mostly, I just thought it was funny. I like kittens. I like donuts, kitten donut. There's no like secret message or anything people are like what does it mean i'm like it doesn't mean anything it means i like kittens and i like donuts who doesn't like kittens and donuts uh but now people really associate me with cats which is also funny uh but yeah there's no there's no great brilliant story just me being a dork uh sure. and enjoying it <laughs> right on well i've enjoyed this conversation Britton. thanks very much for taking some time yeah thank you for having me
From her album In the Air, released earlier this month on Woodsist, that's Anna St. Louis with Phone. Before that, Britton Ashford and her choice from the album Trotter, Hand Ringing in the Wings. Going to leave you with one last track before we hand things over to After 8 Radio. Nova Scotia artist Melina Kulin dropped a new single last week called Nothing at All, featuring Linda Valela. Really beautiful, breezy track, and uh, I hope you enjoy it on this summer evening. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back next Friday. the summer rain that falls you are gentle for my soul you always make me